This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, yes, I have an extra special guest. His name is Mario Giannini, and he is the CEO of private equity giant Hamilton Lane. They oversee or manage over $500 billion in assets. Uh, I kind of feel like this is one of those people that the average person in the industry doesn't really know, and yet they're quite important, quite influential, and move around a whole lot of uh, capital. Uh, His background is that of a bankruptcy lawyer turned private equity investor, and he really has just a fascinating um, history. There aren't a whole lot of people who are more knowledgeable about the ins and outs of private equity, buyout firms, um, distressed debt, a whole run of different uh, fixed income private on the private side. Really, just a, a really informative, really knowledgeable guy. I found this to be an utterly fascinating conversation, and I think you will also. So with no further ado, my conversation with Hamilton Lane's Mario Giannini. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Mario Giannini. He is the CEO of Hamilton Lane, one of the largest private equity firms in the world. He joined the firm in 1993, two years after it was founded in Philadelphia. The company is publicly traded with a market cap of $3.5 billion and oversees over $500 billion in investments, including $68 billion in discretionary assets under management. Janini was named as one of CIO's 2020 Knowledge Broker All-Stars. Mario Janini, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you. So before Hamilton Lane was making private investments, you were advising companies on them. Tell us a little bit about your, your work history. I started out as a lawyer um, and was singularly unsuccessful at that and really branched off into, uh, because I I came out of the bankruptcy side of the legal world and really went into basically turning companies around. Um, And at one point had sold a company and knew someone that had invested in Hamilton Lane. And they said, you ought to go over there and take a look. And I really thought I was just going to spend a few months and find another company to buy and never left. I was like the bad penny that that stays. Couldn't get rid of you. So I have to imagine that having a bankruptcy background gives you very specific insight into what companies can be turned around and what really just need to be liquidated. Yeah, I think the the bankruptcy background helped in that. You're you're absolutely right. It it gives you an idea of what can go wrong. I, I think that's the part that that I took away was what can happen at companies, whether it's companies we're investing in or at Hamilton Lane, what leads companies to go into a bad place? And then what do you do with them, like you said, when they're in that place? So it was very helpful from that perspective. So tell us a little bit about Hamilton Lane's business lines. Who are your clients and and what sort of investments do you tend to consider? Well, our business lines is basically we invest uh, and our clients are anyone that is looking to be investing in the private markets, whether it's private equity, uh, private debt, real estate, real assets, any of the column liquids, the alternative markets. 
And we look at investments in all of those different parts, and we help clients develop portfolios. We help clients choose investments, both on an advisory basis and on a discretionary basis, depending on how they want to work with us. And the clients are global. You know, it's about the business, about 60% clients are U.S. and 40% are non-U.S. So it's a, it's a diversified client base, different types of clients, pension funds, high net worths, um, everything in between. Uh, and it really, as I said, covers the whole range of the, of the private markets. We look at, at buyouts. We look at venture capital. I would say the, the largest part of our business is the private equity side um, as compared to credit or real assets. But those are, as you know, in the private world, increasingly larger parts of it. And in the private equity part, I would say it is mostly buyouts, growth capital, a little bit of venture. Um, and in terms of geography, in terms of where we invest, it's probably 60% U.S., 25 30% Europe, and then rest of the world accounts for the rest of it. So I mentioned earlier you have $68 billion in assets under management that are discretionary and that you have either advisory or supervisory management over the next, let's call it $450 billion. I know I'm going to get questions about that, so let me just pass them along to you. What is the difference between discretionary assets under management and the balance of the assets that you are either supervising or advising on? Yeah, the, the difference is essentially who, who controls the, the final decision. So with the discretionary assets under management, it, somebody gives Hamilton Lane a dollar, a euro, a yen, and says, you invest that for us. You make all the choices. You decide where you want to put it, which investments you want to put it in, and it's, it's completely up to you. Um, on the advisory or assets under advisement, however they're, they're phrased, there we're working with the client. So the client will say anything like, go find the best buyout fund, bring it back to us and recommend it to us, and we will make the final decision, or we work collaboratively. But in, in the advisement or advisory part of the business, we don't have the final say. It is, it is really the client that makes that final determination, and it may be on our recommendation. It may be just on our bringing five funds and they pick one of them. Um, it, it depends on how we work with them. But that's the essential difference is who makes that final call. Is there any real difference between assets under discretionary management or assets under advisement? There's no specific difference. I mean, there may be a difference in terms of what a specific client is looking for. So if a client is asking us to look at only large buyouts, um, then sure, that's all we're looking at for them. But in terms of the analysis, in terms of looking at, you know, which are the best investments, why are they the best, the analysis is the same. And it really comes down to then, you know, how does it fit in a portfolio? And there, again, it's either our decision in terms of our discretion, we make the decision, or it's the client's decision in terms of saying, I know you love that fund, but it doesn't fit for XYZ reason that we're determining. But the analysis is the same. There's been some criticism about performance reporting in some private markets, IRR in particular. What's the best way for private markets to report investment performance? Yeah, there, there really is a lot of criticism about IRR, and, and I think it's, it's misplaced, honestly. I mean, obviously, I'm in private equity, so I'm going to say, well, it's misplaced. But it, it's not that hard to do private equity on an IRR or a TWR, a time-weighted return, which is how most asset classes are, uh, are judged. And so this whole notion that IRR is misleading 
it is one measure. The, the problem with private equity, unlike the public markets, is in the public markets, if I give you a dollar to invest, you go invest it in the, in the public markets. You invest it all at once, and it stays in there. In private equity, if it's a dollar, you commit a dollar, and then I invest 25 cents you know, periodically. It's, it doesn't go in all at the same time. And so all the IRR is is a measure of trying to figure out how to determine performance when you're not taking all the money at once and investing it at once. And it's just one measure. And we have a lot of clients that use IRR and then use TWR. They use different different ways of, in, of measuring performance. So, yeah, if you're using IRR alone, it can be a little hard to then compare it to your other asset classes. But most people don't do that. They, they really compare it in a number of different ways. So I, I wouldn't be too exercised about this whole IRR debate. So one of the things we've been hearing is that the public markets have gotten pricey, fixed income is yielding practically zero, and that is creating a lot of opportunity and competition in the private space. Tell us a little bit about what you see in the private equity markets. And for you, that includes yeah, private I'll, debt I'll, markets as well. Yeah, I'll look at it from two perspectives. One is from the one you alluded to, which is, um, we're seeing a whole lot of interest in the private markets, um, and it's driven by the factors you cited. Let's talk about credit, for example. In, in the credit markets, if you're a public credit uh, investor, you're getting lousy returns. I mean, they're just historically, they're very low. And so it drives you to look at private credit because the returns are so much higher than they are on the public side. And frankly, there's on the private credit side, there's a huge amount of opportunity because when you look at where the public markets provide credit, it's to larger companies, and private credit tends to provide to smaller companies. So there's a big opportunity set there, and with banks having left that market after the great financial crisis, there's, there's just a lot of space for private credit to grow. On the equity side, private equity, you have the same factors at work that you have in the public markets. So valuations are really high, um, and there's a lot of competition for deals. With that said, you look at the number of private companies that there are compared to public companies. You look at the number of public companies, I think, what is it, over the last 10 years, they've, they've gone down 50% in the U.S. There's just more places to invest in the private side than there is in the public side. And so there's opportunity out there, but I am the last person to tell you that the world is a screaming buy because prices are cheap on the, on the private side. They're not. You really have to work to get returns. There's a, there's a lot of money floating around the world right now. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on with the public markets. You mentioned earlier that the number of publicly traded companies uh, in the U.S. has dropped practically in half. I think the Wilshire 5000 is now down to about 3,400 companies. Why do you think companies are staying private longer over the past decade? What, what do you think is driving that? I think it's a couple of reasons. The first is the, the most publicized reason is the hassle of being public. Um, you read about the costs associated with whether it's more more auditing people, more financial, more compliance, whatever it is. I think being public is just, you know, it's, it's a hardship for, for many companies, for many executives. And so people would prefer not doing it if they didn't have to. And that really is the second reason why uh, you've seen a reduction, I think, in, in public companies is is the rise of private equity in private markets. You now have a very, very credible alternative financing source for 
some of the things that you would otherwise have to go public 10 years ago. Um, if you want to acquire a company, private equity is there to provide the capital. You don't have to go public to raise the capital. If, uh, if you want to take out a founder, if you want to do you know, whatever you want to do with your shareholder base, you can do it on the private equity side. There's just an enormous amount of capital that is there ready to provide corporate finance in a way that before it really either was a bank or the public market. So I think it's the combination of those two things that has led to um, a reduction in the number of public companies. So how has all this capital that's been sloshing around changed the PE landscape? It's more than just quantity. How is this qualitatively changing that market? It's changed how you have to go about getting return. I think what has happened is when, when there wasn't as much capital then you really could use just financial engineering. I mean, it was it was a much smaller game in the sense of there there wasn't as much competition for deals. It wasn't as well known on the private. I mean, you look at 20 years ago, even uh, coming out of the 01, the 2001 downturn, it just was not a normal way to, to do financing to use private equity. That's just not the case anymore. So what it means is from the qualitative perspective, you need to do something more than just figure out how to lever a company and, and reduce costs or, you know, whatever you did 25 years ago. Um, you have to do something to make that company better, whether it's an acquisition strategy, whether it's, it's an operating strategy. you got to grow that company. And, and it has changed the nature of how private equity generates return. In my view, I think if you look at we run value creation models that say how, did, how, does, how is return generated from these deals. Um, and you've seen a shift over the last 10, 15, 20 years into much more emphasis on operating results, much more emphasis on EBITDA growth. Um, so that has really changed what you're looking for in general partners, what you're looking for to make money. Huh. Interesting. So Hamilton Lane is one of the few alternative asset managers that that's a publicly traded company. What's the motivation for somebody that manages private investments to themselves go public. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's, uh, you know, we, we, we preach the virtues of being private and then we're public. Um, I think it's part of the life cycle of many companies. I think for us, there were a couple of things that drove it. One was we were always an equity culture, um, even when we were, when we were private. The, the mantra around the firm was, you know, you, you create value, personal value, through equity ownership, and, and we had well over 100 of the employees that had equity stake uh, in the company. And I think you reach a point where everyone has equity and they go, uh, what am I doing with this equity? And it's, a, it's amazing. It leads to the question of, oh, I get what's going to happen. We're going to get sold to someone, and then everyone's going to ec- realize their equity value. And internally, they begin questioning that, and externally, people begin asking you that. So when you look at how do I how do I give people a path over ten years over fifteen years to realize equity value um, in their holdings, going public is one of the ways you can do that. And so that was certainly probably the the, the most important factor. The other factor was was the branding. Um, what we realized there was a group in, in Europe, partners group that went public, and the branding impact was huge. I think in an industry that people viewed as small. The ability to say, yeah, no, we're, we're institutional enough. We've got quality controls. We've got SEC controls. Um, we're legit. And, and that really mattered, particularly outside the United States. Um, and then the third factor was just the one I talked about, alluded to with the equity ownership, was 
it tells people you're going to stay independent. I think all the questions about who's going to own you in five years, which is really important in the business we do. People want to know that you're going to be around for 10 years. You know, they're signing up for quite some time to be doing these investments. So those three factors made it an interesting way to go. And the markets were open to it where they weren't, I don't know, 15 years ago, you you couldn't really think about going public in in the business we're in. So you guys IPO'd in 2017. What was that experience Mm -hmm. like? Because you're you're all of a sudden talking to public equity people, and you know we're always used to talking to private equity people. So the roadshow, all of those things, that was that was just a very very different sort of thing. You know, public. I know this sounds stupid, and and probably says something about how little I know, but in private equity, you spend all this time analyzing companies because you're stuck with them for some period of time. You you can't just say, "Oop, made a mistake." In the public world, it's just a very different experience because they they all have a mentality of, I'd like to make the investment, but if it's a mistake, I can always change my mind in a month, a week, you know, whatever it is. And so that's just a different mindset. So it was uh, it was interesting. It was kind of getting your your head framed around. They they have a different time frame. Their perspective, their time horizon is just different from what we're sort of used to as as what we do day to day in our business. So does having to report to shareholders every 90 days, does that change your perspective on anything? How does that impact how you think about managing a company with over 400 employees? And I know you're international. What do those quarterly requirements do to how you see the world? Yeah, it hasn't changed anything at this point for, I think, a couple of reasons. One is we went out as a controlled company. Um, and which, which technically just means that while, uh, I don't know if you think something like 50%, 40% um, of, the, of the equity is owned by management, voting control is something like 80-something percent we own voting control. So we don't have to worry about hedge funds buying us or activist investors and right. demanding changes. So there's no real pressure on, oh my gosh, you know, the, the shareholders are going to demand we do this and vote us out or whatever they do on the on on the public side on those situations. That is a huge factor. It it eases all of that pressure. The other thing we are very clear with people is don't judge us quarter to quarter. Uh, This just isn't a quarterly judgment business. Uh, You know, we look at it year to year, and that's how we're going to do things. And there's sort of, I believe, a self-selection process. Uh, Investors or shareholders that want that perspective will buy your shares, and others that don't won't. And so we've not really felt a whole lot of pressure in terms of quarterly earnings or meeting numbers. You look at our quarterly numbers, we've, we've hit consensus on some, we've exceeded, we've, we've, uh, we've not met consensus in, in other quarters. And, you know, it's just sort of, that's kind of what it is each quarter. It can't really help that. Huh, quite interesting. Let, let's talk a little bit about what's been going on in 2020 with the pandemic and lockdown. You guys are a global company. You have, I think, 17 offices around the world. How early on did you recognize how severely the economy was going to be impacted by the pandemic? I I don't know that we recognized it a lot earlier than most. I think we were, so our, our offices in Asia closed very early, but even at that point, uh, so this is probably what December they're they're closing early January. Really? Even mm-hmm. at that point, I think there was a feeling that the 
there wasn't a feeling that the virus was contagious as it, we now know it is. Um, and so I think we felt that it was probably going to be contained to Asia um, when we really began to realize is when it, when it spread to Europe. Um, our European offices at that point and our European clients were saying, uh, this is not this is not your average flu. I got news for you people. And so I would say we went into pretty heavy duty beware mode, maybe a few weeks earlier than than general. But as you know, once it hit Europe, it really started to spread pretty quickly. Um, but I think in February, it was pretty clear that this was going to be a pretty big impact, if not globally, at least in some very major areas of the, of the world. Hmm, quite, quite interesting. So are there any advantages to private companies uh, during a pandemic and lockdown versus those that are public? H- how does that impact management of those entities in very tumultuous, volatile times? The, the one thing I will say, and, and not just because I'm in private equity, but, but paying some credit to the private equity world, private credit world, the private world, um, they learned from the 08-09 downturn. And what uh-huh. we saw really beginning in February, um, certainly in the, in the Western world, um, was immediate, and I mean immediate, action saying, this is really going to be bad. We need to hunker down and prepare. And so I would say that the private world reacted far faster, and maybe because they could, um, because obviously if you're private, you can do things instantly, and you don't have to worry about you know, saying anything to the public or what the public reaction is going to be. And we had, we had people talking about you know, contingency planning in February and putting those plans into, into place. But I think it was more driven, I think it was less driven by the pandemic than it was driven by, I know what happened in 08, 09, and it feels like that kind of thing happening again, so let's prepare for the worst. Um, and I would say that was across the board. It was surprising how quickly it happened. Huh. So, so that's a really interesting observation. How does 2020 compare to an event like 0809, or how does it compare to the, you know, dot com implosion 2000 to 2003? I think we all thought in March that it was going to be almost a replay of 0809. I think everyone prepared for it. Um, as if you know, we're going to have 12 to 18 months of just all hell breaking loose. And that's when it all changed, as you know. Um, I think a couple of things were different. One, you had a monetary and fiscal response in literally the period of a month or two that did, I don't know, 10 times what it took the fiscal and monetary authorities in '09 to do over 18 months, 24 months. So the speed of the response was unbelievable, and, and which, in my view, really led to the stock market certainly doing better, all markets doing better, um, and the economy sort of flatlining and, and not falling apart. That was big difference, number one. But the other big difference that only became apparent after a month um, was in, in every other downturn I've ever been associated with, you could look back and go, here's the companies that did well, and here's the companies that didn't. The, you know, they, they had too much leverage, so they didn't do well. They, they had, you know, lousy management, they didn't do well, whatever. You could point to mistakes that were made or things that were done wrong. That wasn't the case in this, in this pandemic. Here, it was random. 
if you were in the right industry, you did well. If you were in the wrong industry, you did poorly. And it didn't matter what your balance sheet looked like. It didn't matter how good or bad your management was. You, it was kind of the, the luck of the draw or the bad luck of the draw. If you're in a pandemic, hit industry. If you're in a hotel, if you're in a restaurant, if you're in travel, you're in trouble. And right. no amount of great foresight would have helped you. And, and that is, we just haven't seen that before. It's, it's a very, very unique situation that way. Sure, after a few months, then it became apparent who knows what they're doing, who can adjust to it. But that initial shock to the company or that initial boost to the company had very, very little to do with the genius or the lack of genius of anyone associated with that particular investment. Are your investors aware of that or, or understanding of that? Because I can imagine certain people just demanding performance regardless, and markets don't work that way. How empathetic and understanding has the private equity investor class been to what's clearly an exogenous shock? Um, I would say pretty good. I would say pretty good. I think there's still the demand for performance, um, and so that doesn't go away. I, I don't. I don't think you get a. I think you get a free pass to say, well, guess what? I just invested in all restaurants. Um, so you don't get that. But I, I do think again, conditioned by 0809, um, investors. I was surprised that in March we weren't getting a lot of calls the way we got in 0809 of people really saying, get me out of my investments, or you got to do something, or, oh my gosh, I don't want to be anywhere near illiquid assets. Instead, people said, I get the drill. I understand what happens. Um, I actually would almost rather be in illiquids than in public right now, so I'm not panicking. And I think that, that again, was more a conditioning from, from the 0809 experience. Um, and that's how people have reacted. They've, they've, taken it in stride. And again, that's not something that you would have expected. That If you had talked to me in April, I would not have thought that that's how uh, people would have reacted on the investment side, um, on the private huh. markets. But that's been the experience. Really, really interesting. Are there any particular areas in the economy that, because of the pandemic, because of the lockdown, uh, have created some opportunities? I mean, I understand no one wants to put money into restaurant chains or, or um, hotels or live entertainment venues, but anything that has popped up because of this that suddenly has become more interesting? Well, here, here's the funny part, I think. You, you mentioned three industries where I think people are looking. So I, I think one of the things people have to make a decision about today is, are they going to be value or growth investors? And I know in the public markets, that's a sort of common refrain. But in the private markets, that has not been the normal refrain. Uh, we really never thought of the world as growth versus uh, value. But as investors, I think we have two choices today. And, and you can choose to be agnostic and just you know do a little bit of everything. But are you going to invest in the growth areas, the areas that right now are selling at multiples that they were pre-pandemic because these companies have done great, whether they're technology companies, whether they're some, they're some home improvement companies that have done great during this pandemic. They're growth companies. They've grown, and you believe they'll continue to grow because people, this pandemic will go on some time longer, and or people's behavior will have changed, and they'll be using these sorts of services and companies longer. 
Or are you going to pay cheaper prices for assets in those very industries you described, restaurants, hotels, um, and you're going to make a decision that those industries are coming back in X time frame in X way, like they'll grow, you know, they'll be equal to what they were before, they'll be 80% of what they were, you know, pick your number. I think that's where investors right now, where we're all sort of trying to figure out where are we going to lean, how are we going to invest, and, and what are we doing? Because the cheap prices are in those assets you described that are in industries that are hit. But do you believe they'll ever come back? They will. I'm sure they will. But when? What's the right capital structure for these companies? Um, and what's the right price today? Huh. So, so those value sectors you mentioned, the immediate question that pops into mind for private equity investing is, is this an equity investment or is this uh, on the credit side? People are looking at it. That's exactly right. They are looking at it both ways. Where do I want to put, put what's my risk return profile around this? Um, and, you know, what does the company want? Uh, obviously, I'm going to take a lower number if I'm a lower return number if I'm doing credit, but I'm going to have more security around it. So I, I think that's those are the areas that people are really beginning. But even on the credit side, so maybe I want to put my money with a growth company because it's going to be safer, it's going to grow. I don't have to worry about whether you know this pandemic is going to go on a year or more, and my value company will be hit longer than I thought. It's a it's a very very interesting time to invest. People have to make some real choices, um, and I think unlike pre pandemic where you didn't have a choice, you either were in an industry that was hit or you weren't. I think investment return over the next two or three years will really be determined by decisions you make today around whether you're going to look for growth, whether you're going to look for value, whether you're going into credit, whether you're going into equity. Uh, I think people will be making portfolio and investment decisions that will really matter um, when we look back. When you and I have this interview in a couple of years, we will look back and go, oh my gosh, what was I thinking? I really thought growth was going to continue like this. Let's talk a little bit about what the future of private equity investments look like, but I but I have to start with the question of IPOs. IPO markets have been on fire this year. Does that create a tailwind for private equity? Uh, probably, probably. It, 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 <laughs> everything, everything is, uh, you know, sort of the the good side and bad side. The good side is it creates exits, and at the end of the day. You know, investors want exits. They they want some monetization of their investments, and so the IPO market provides that. It also provides um, another path. It's not it's not the only path. It gives it gives a company. If I'm going to say I'm an IPO, that almost automatically attracts strategic investors, um, and so I'm creating an environment where the, my investment will probably do better because there's there's more interesting ways to, to exit, and it creates a competitive environment around that exit price. Um, the, the bad side of it is, is twofold. One is that it creates, on the buy side, it creates a, a competitive market with a higher price. Generally, IPOs are higher priced. And so if I want to buy company X, they say, well, you can buy me, but you're going to have to pay twice as much as you just said because I'm an IPO. So it, it, it has that sort of effect on my ability to invest uh, in some companies. The other thing it does is it creates some pressure, interestingly, for private equity of keeping up performance post-IPO. 
you saw that part of the reason some people were skeptical about private equity in, in 08 was because the companies that they took public in 06, 07 didn't perform as well as people wanted. And so it took a period of time for private equity to regain its credibility in the public markets. Um, and so that adds just another layer of pressure, if you will, in terms of private equity and the scrutiny on its performance, because it's not just performance as a private company. Now it's performance as a public company. So so let's delve into that a little bit. If you're evaluating a private investment company to determine whether or not you want to put your own personal money in there, what would you be looking for? What what sort of questions would you ask management? I, I always think that one of the most underrated things in investing is the quality of the management team. Um, I think that is that is where, yes, the financials are important, and they always are, um, but those are relatively straightforward to to analyze. It, it doesn't it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out you know what what kind of interest exposure, what kind of interest cost a company can bear. You got to make some judgment about whether that industry is is right. But at the end of the day, I mean, we've always said this that if if you've got the right management team, the right culture around that management team, you can have the wrong business strategy and you'll probably be okay. But the opposite is not true. You can have a great business strategy, but if you've got a lousy management team, lousy culture at that company, you're probably not going to do well. And so I think the first question is around, you know, how does this management team work? What are their motivations? How do they think about uh, the future? What are they looking to achieve? I think those are the things that that you you end up spending a lot of time around um, and that are not really quantifiable. There's a whole raft of quantifiable things you can look at, but there's a enormous qualitative element. Um, and, I, and I would say, if you look at some of the best investors, uh, one of the things that's always struck me is how some people are just really good at judging human talent. Um, and they do a great job of picking the right management teams and picking the right people to go into management teams. So I, I think that's an underappreciated art of investing. Hmm. Quite, quite interesting. So there has been increasing um, chatter about private equity potentially finding its way into uh, smaller than accredited investor portfolios, including uh, 401ks. What are your thoughts of private equity becoming, I don't even know if normalized is the right word, but sort of becoming just another asset class option? I'm, I'm probably in the skeptical camp on that one. Um, it, I, I think there are there are a couple. On, on the good side, I think it is. Look, it, it's a it's a it's a good returning asset class, um, and so people should have access to it. But it's also a an asset class that doesn't have a the kind of transparency that the public uh, markets have. It's an asset class that, as you talked about with IRR, has a different way of reporting, a different way of money flows coming in and out compared to to public equity. And so I think we all have to be really careful about assuming that this should be a great 401k or retail investment option. Um, To me, it's a little bit like what happened with real estate when they created REITs. I think that that it will take some, some legal changes in, in regulatory structure and law in order to create structures that make private equity um, a good investment choice for the retail investor. And I'm, I'm not sure that 
having the retail investor go into some of these structures is is really the right way to go. But I, I worry about it. I worry about what happens in a downturn when investors go, wait, I, I didn't, like, you didn't tell me that this was going to happen. Um, so I would say that, yes, it is an asset class that will be an increasing part of high net worth channels, um, um, but I am skeptical that existing structures are really going to be a way that retail investors will be happy with their experience with private equity. So, so you mentioned one of the obstacles is the lack of transparency. What could the industry do if it wanted to become more transparent? Well, I mean, the thing it would have to do is provide essentially daily pricing. The thing it would have to do is provide much more transparency around um, operating performance at companies. And, and you know, there, there you're in that struggle with the whole right. purpose of private equity is that, is that you're not doing that. And so, you know, are, are you twisting the very th- one of the very things that makes private equity interesting in order to to allow other investors or to give access to other investors to come in, that's, that's a tough one. I think it is, it is the, the fundamental daily pricing that is just a completely different thing from what, how private equity operates that makes it tough to say, okay, we're going to be exactly like the, our public equity brethren and, and do it this way. I don't, I, I don't I, have a great answer other than to say the REITs did it, but they did it in a, in a completely different structure and had tax changes that allowed them essentially to create a basket of companies, um, and that worked. And I think if you do it that way for private equity, uh, I think that would be a, an interesting way to go. Yeah, the the nice thing about REITs is, is it sort of solves the K-1 tax issues if you're going to have 100 separate private holdings. Yep. Um, so somewhere between an ETF and a REIT might be one situation I know there's a lot of reporting and custodial issues, but how on earth could you possibly get a daily price from a, a, a relatively small private company? That that becomes all but impossible. I, I, I you could barely get annual prices, really quarterly prices. What are they? How much does a private business really change month to month, quarter to quarter? It doesn't. I mean, I, I think some of the things, and you've seen it, people talk about is essentially an algorithm that mimics. So pr- private company is in, I don't know, it, it, it makes drywall. And so you get a basket of public companies that are in that industry, and then you apply its daily changes to that private company's changes. I mean, it's a synthetic. You're not really pricing. Because at the end, pricing is, is a matter of, of a buyer and a seller, and you don't have that in the in the private context. So anything you do will be synthetic. Huh. Quite, quite interesting. Let let me switch gears on you and talk a little bit about ESG, environmental, social, and governance issues. Last month, uh, Hamilton Lane created a position to formally lead your efforts in that space. Uh, how is ESG and impact investing playing out in the private markets? And are you seeing any sort of demand for uh, institutional investors for this? I would say if you, if you project out a few years what will be the biggest changes in the private markets, I think ESG will be up there. I don't know if it's number one, number three, but it'll be up there. Um, 
And it's been an important factor for some time, but I think, interestingly, the, the pandemic will make that even more of a focus, whether it's because people go, the reason the pandemic happened is because of, of human encroachment on nature, whether it's because people go during the pandemic, we've seen that you know we, we can reduce our reliance on certain things. There's just, it is, it is going to be a part of everyday conversation. And I'll divide it into two parts. The one part is, have we seen more interest in impact investing or ESG-focused investing? I would say there's a little more interest in specific investments targeted in those areas, but that's sort of been a generally increasing part. Where there is a really increasing focus is on ESG as a criteria on every investment you make. So it's not to say I am going to make an impact investment because it will have XYZ impact on the environment. Every investment will be analyzed, and we're getting more inquiries around this than, than we've ever had. What is, what is that investment's impact on the environment? How is that impact? How is that investment? Um, what is the governance around it? So I believe that just as we all have become accustomed to looking at an investment and saying, what is the projected EBITDA in year three, you know, whatever it is, I think we will have every investment report, every investment analysis, look at a deal under a set of ESG criteria, um, and and we will be we will be judged by that as part of our investment um, performance. I've heard from a number of different analysts who look at ESG not as a sort of progressive versus conservative political battle, but rather in context of hey, this is a methodology of doing certain types of risk screening. Um, you don't end yep. up with the sort of uh, Me Too movement that in companies where there's diverse boards and promotion for uh, women and people of color, and, and you don't end up with the sort of um, disaster we saw in the Gulf of Mexico a few years ago um, with, with a giant oil spill when you're screening for ESG. So the bigger question is, is this merely a, a risk screening tool? What What is the impact of this when you're looking at private companies? Well, it's certainly a risk screening tool, but it's also a return enhancing tool. So, for example, um, will take a consumer oriented company? Will consumers respond to a company that has a more diverse board, a more diverse management team? Will consumers respond better to a company? that is making efforts to promote, um, uh, to retard climate change. I I think it is becoming, yes, certainly a risk factor, um, but it is becoming a factor of my business will do better or it won't get hurt because I'm perceived as a company that is indifferent to the environment or indifferent to social factors or isn't governed properly. Um, so I think as we look at it, it is it is both. It is both a defensive and offensive part of generating return and and reducing risk. And I so think that's me, here to stay. I, I don't think this is a fad. It, it, we've crossed whatever line you cross when you say now this is part of mainstream um, investment analysis. Huh. That that's quite quite interesting. I wanted to address. Um, uh, one of the issues you raised in terms of governance, in terms of governance and diversity on boards, 
Hamilton Lane was recently named International LP of the Year by the Private Equity Women's Investor Network. Our industry is very underrepresented with women, with people of color. What does that honorific mean about your approach to diversity? Well, I feel like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll pat ourselves on the back. I feel like we have always been very, very conscious of the importance of diversity for, for us as a firm in terms of being a better firm. It, 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 just, it just matters to us. And so I feel like we've always been at the forefront of that in terms of our industry. But you're right, our industry is, is not great, both financial uh, industry in general and private equity specifically. Um, and so I'm, I'm very proud of that honor. I think it, it says that people recognize that we are, we have done a lot uh, in terms of diversity, but we need to do more. I mean, it's, it's as simple as that. Uh, it is still, we need to do more both for Hamilton Lane and we need to do more in terms of making the industry more diverse. I mean, I think the, the good news about being our size and having our place in the industry is that we, we have an ability um, to, to frame the conversation and, and make sure that where we're investing, diversity is one of the goals that our investee companies, that our general partners um, understand is important to us and to our clients. So, you know, it's, it's a process. Uh, we're very happy with where we are, and, but you just got to keep, keep moving. So I know you represent Hamilton Lane on a couple of boards, both boards of advisors and, and boards of directors. What sort of, uh, what is that work like? Do you enjoy it? Or uh, do you feel like you really have input into some of the companies you invest in? Or are these really more just advisory uh, positions? Yeah, I'm more on, on the advisory side. So I'm not... <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of advisory boards, to tell you the truth. People always laugh at me about about that. Um, they're fine and and they're good in terms of, particularly when it gets to to talking about conflict of interest issues. I think they're important uh, that you have a board to do that. But in terms of getting information, in terms of providing feedback, in terms of the kinds of things that that really matter um, in in shaping how how uh, groups invest, I, I think the the smaller meetings are still more important. I, I don't know that, that advisory boards really accomplish as much as, as you'd want them to. As I said, I think the, their ability to opine on conflicts is important and the fact that they're there and provide a way for the general partners to be more transparent is important. But as a decision-making body, yeah, I'm not a, huge, not a huge believer in that. All right. Let me throw a curveball at you. Tell us about the Hamiltones. Um, uh, we have a, a house band, essentially. It's, uh, I don't know how many, there are 12 or 13 of us. And we do, well, not in the pandemic, but we do a charity concert every year. Uh, and it's fun. You know, we get six or 700 people. We pick a charity that we want to give to whom we give the proceeds. Uh, and it's, it's a good outlet. We have, I don't know, four or five singers. And like every other band, they're the divas. And we do whatever they want us to do. Um, I play guitar. <laughs> poorly, but I play. And it's, it's fun. I think people enjoy it. During the pandemic, what we've done is uh, we've, like, probably every month we do a song. You know, we'll, we'll do it virtually, and then someone puts it together, and then we send it out over a Slack channel. 
and it's it's fun. People enjoy it. All different genres of, of music. I can imagine that being fun. When I when I sort of happened across that in our research, I said, I, I have to save that question because it, it does look like fun. So, <laughs> Music's a big deal for us. You know, so our conference rooms, I don't know if you know this, but our conference rooms are, um, we don't have like the Lincoln Room or the Elk Room or whatever, you know, whatever people name things. We have, on one floor, we have guitar makers, Gibson, Fender, Martin. And on the other floor, we have guitar players. So we have the Eddie Van Halen Room, Jimmy Page Room, Jimi Hendrix Room just the music's a big deal for the firm it's uh, it's always been that way that that's quite interesting um so let me jump to my favorite questions and uh, that we ask all our guests and and let's see how you uh how you manage these um tell us what you've been streaming under lockdown what are your favorite netflix or or amazon prime shows what are you listening to what are you keeping yourself entertained with so the I hate to say this, but I don't. I don't listen to podcasts. I hate. I shouldn't say that, right? Um, I don't think anybody I mean, does. Yeah. Well, we're oh, going to get okay. to your favorite books. I'm going to. That's that's my third okay, question. But, but no streaming. But this question. I, I am. I am a big fan. I'm a big fan of um, of of mysteries on on Amazon. I watch things like Shetland, Borderland, River. I, I love those kind of uh, Scandinavian noir uh, mysteries. I, I I love them. I just watch these things like at night. My my wife is similar, and I remember her watching um, the original Woman with the Dragon Tattoo in I think it was Danish oh. or or she the not the, the, the Swedish version. It is the Swedish so version, yeah, right. She, and when yeah. when it, the U.S. version came out, she's like, nope, no interest. So so it that's kind terrible. of fascinating. It was terrible. The Swedish version was compelling. Tell her to watch River. I don't know if she's seen it, but River is it's a one season uh show on I think it was Amazon. I can't remember if it was Amazon or Netflix. J- j- phenomenal. If you like those sort of odd mystery short seasons, have you ever seen The Room? I believe that's on Amazon Prime also. I have not. I'll have to watch that one. The Room. Very okay. interesting cast, really sort of borderline sci-fi supernatural but intriguing and, and definitely worth uh, worth playing with. Um, so let me uh, ask you this question. Tell us about your mentors who helped shape your career. Um, I, I would say certainly in the private equity world, there have been a couple of general partners who I have viewed as mentors, who I've turned to for advice, who I've turned to for, for, um, for help. But I would say my main mentors, interestingly, were, were teachers I had um, in, in college who I, I remained close to over the years. Um, they, they were an enormous influence uh, on my life. So I would say, I've always said this to people, just the, the, the teachers you meet in your life have an incredible, can have an incredible influence on what you do in life and how you do it. It's a, it's a surprising thing as I look back and think about that. You, you mentioned reading. Tell us about some of your favorite books. What are you reading now, and what do you like to recommend to people? I, I'm, a, I'm a fiction fan. Um, I, don't, I don't read a ton of nonfiction. I don't read any business books or how-to or, you know, the good to great kind of stuff. Um, and I just, I like all sorts of, of fiction. Um, uh, what did Give I just read? Give us a few read? titles. Eleanor Oliphant. Uh, Eleanor, I 
forget the exact title. Eleanor Oliphant uh, is is okay. Um, what have I read? What else have I read recently? Americana. Um, books like that. I, I just all all sorts of different kinds of books. Anna, what sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who was thinking about a career in the private market space? Um, what I would tell them is to, to be a little more flexible and open to changes around what you're doing and how you're doing it. What I find is a lot of people coming into the private markets have a very, very fixed view of what they want in life and how they want it. And it just doesn't happen that way. The markets, the world is going to change over the next five or ten years. It always does. And and people just need to be way more open to trying different things, doing different things, experiencing different things. I, I worry a little bit about, okay, here's how the private equity career span works, and, and that's what I'm going to do come hell or high water. And people just need and coming from me, kind of rich, but go with the flow a little more. Huh. Good answer. And our final question, what do you know about the world of private equity investing today that you wish you knew 30 or so years ago? Oof. What do I know today that I wish I knew 30 years ago? I think it's the advice I would give. I would have given myself the same advice, that... Um, it, it is not going to look the way it does, and you can't, you cannot, I wish I had known that you can't assume that things are going to move in any sort of linear direction. Um, had I known that, I think I would have been more aggressive about pursuing certain changes. Um, I would have been just more open to certain changes. I, I, I guess I just thought things were going to, since it had happened that way before, it was going to continue largely to happen that way going forward, and that's not how it happened. Huh. Quite quite fascinating. Mar- Mario, thank you for being so generous with your time. The when this nonsense When this nonsense is all over, um, we'd love to have you actually in the Bloomberg building to do this live and in person. It's, it's a different experience. Um, we're all trying our best under lockdown, but I'd love to have you back to, to continue this conversation. I'd, I'd love to do that. I mean, it's interesting. I, I've said to people, I'm, I'm an introvert, and I thought this would be right up my alley, like I would thrive. And what I've realized is the ability to see people in person, the ability to exchange five minutes in the hallway um, is vital, vital to, to how we operate, how we live, how we learn. Um, and, and it's just it's amazing to me how much, how much I miss it, and I suspect how much we all miss it. So, so let me slip in one final question. All this talk about the end of cities, the death of the office, the ability for everybody to work work remotely, how much of that is just hype from within the lockdown? And as soon as we get the opportunity to kind of return to normal, a lot of things might end up going back to the way they were. I think think we will return much more quickly to the way we were than anyone anticipates. And And I offer two anecdotal things. One is look at China. Where they basically gotten rid of the virus. Um, right. It is, and, and and people I know in China tell me it is largely the way it was before, other than international travel. People are going to movies. People are going to restaurants. People are going to parties. And I think we will be the same way. Um, the other 
other thing that's interesting is just at Hamilton Lane, before the pandemic, we were moving our offices in March. Before the pandemic, we asked our employees whether they wanted to work remotely, meaning did they want to be in the office uh, less than, so outside the office three days a week or more. And it was something like 40% wanted to work remotely, that this was really good. We asked the same thing a couple of weeks ago because we're going back to the office on a voluntary basis, like one day a week if people want to go back in certain groups. Out of the client and investment teams, 100% of the people said they did not want to work remotely. Did not. Wow. Um, and I think that's it's telling. I think people before this pandemic and during the pandemic, there's both the feeling of, uh, you know, changing the way we live is good. And during the pandemic, nothing will be back the same. No, it, it will come back much faster. Sure, business travel might be a little bit less because we've all realized we don't need to go all over the place 10 times a year. But leisure travel, all the stuff we want to do together, it will come back very, very quickly once once we're certain we're not going to get the, the virus. Thanks, Mario, for being uh, so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Mario Giannini. He is the CEO of Hamilton Lane. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of the other 350 or so we've done over the past six and a half years. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, Stitcher, Acast, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Give us a review on Apple iTunes. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can check out my daily reads at ritholtz.com. You can read my weekly column at bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put together these conversations each week. Tim Harrow is my audio engineer. Michael Boyle is my producer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Atika Valbrun is our project director. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.